this is the Historically Thinking Commonplace book for the week of January 27th, 2019. I'm Al Zambone. Welcome. It's a busy week of historical events, birthdays, and death days. On January 27th alone, here's what's happened. Dante Alighieri was exiled from Florence, providing him with plenty of time to write the Divine Comedy. The National Geographic Society was founded in Washington, D.C. Its magazine began nine months later. In 1944, the Nazi blockade of Leningrad was lifted, and in 1945, the Russian army reached Auschwitz and liberated it. On January 27, 1967, three American astronauts were killed when Apollo 1 caught fire during a launch test at Cape Canaveral. Birthdays, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, Lewis Carroll, Samuel Gompers founded the Cigar Workers Union and then the American Federation of Labor became its first president and Kaiser Wilhelm II and all that just on January 27th. There's much else to discuss and I'm not going to mention any of it because I've been thinking a lot about the State of the Union. It's been in the news. I thought I would make some jottings or the audio equivalent thereof in the commonplace book about the curious political culture of the State of the Union. It's an example of how many things in the American constitutional order, not necessarily in the American Constitution, but in the political culture surrounding our Constitution and government, are derived from Britain. In fact, the State of the Union is the Republican equivalent of the monarch's speech to the opening of Parliament. In fact, monarchs had, during at least the Stuart reign, from Charles II through Anne, actually also attended the House of Lords from time to time. Charles II, in 1670, attended incognito. That is, he did not wear his robes of state. He did not carry regalia, such as crown and scepter and orb. He just had come to, quote, renew a custom of his predecessors long discontinued to be present at debates, but not to interrupt the freedom thereof. And he would hang up by the fireplace, lobbying individuals or small groups of peers. This continued up until the death of Queen Anne, who would attend Parliament or attend the House of Lords, basically to pressure members of the House to support the position of her ministers. George I, perhaps because he did not speak English, discontinued that practice. But it's interesting to see that Washington wasn't sure that he shouldn't do the same in a way. Ron Chernow describes how, after the Senate voted down Washington's candidate to be collector for the port of Savannah, Washington, though still recovering from a terrible illness which nearly killed him in the first year of his presidency, arrived at the Senate. Here's what's happened, happened next. Washington's unexpected entrance stunned the legislators, undoubtedly feeling a bit befuddled. Vice President Adams rose from his canopied chair of crimson velvet and offered it to Washington, who then proceeded to upbraid the 22 members of the Senate, demanding to know why they had spurned his appointee. The president showed a great want of temper when one of his nominations was rejected, said Senator Ralph Izzard of South Carolina. After a long, awkward silence, Senator James Gunn of Georgia, whose state included Savannah, rose and, from personal respect for the personal character of General Washington, explained his opposition to Fishburne. At the same time, he wanted it understood that the Senate felt no obligation to explain its reasoning to the president. 
The episode marked the start of senatorial courtesy, whereby senators reserved the right to block nominations in their home states. Despite Gunn's respectful treatment, Washington went off in a great huff, and Tobias Lear said that as soon as he returned from the Senate, he expressed his very great regret for having gone there. So it's not part of our political culture that the president attend the Senate, observe the debates, backslap the senators, and push them to support his agenda. But the State of the Union remains. Yet the Constitution doesn't require that it be delivered in person and spoken. Washington did so. Adams did so. They were responding to the precedent of English monarchs. Jefferson, it's often said, stopped giving public speeches or public presentations of the State of the Union, the annual message to Congress, technically, because he did not enjoy public speaking. It's true he did not, but Thomas Jefferson enjoyed monarchy even less than public speaking. And it seems to me almost inescapable that the reason that Jefferson stopped addressing the joint session of Congress was that he found it far too monarchical. It's pleasing for political cynics to read Jefferson's notes for a draft of the annual message written sometime before November 12, 1801. In his jottings, Jefferson writes, In complying with my constitutional duty of giving to Congress information of the State of the Union, it is a matter of great consolation that I have to state no aggressions from abroad, no insurrections at home, no extraordinary afflictions by sickness, nor general sufferings from want, no interruptions of the course of civil justice, nor new encroachments on the rights of conscience under color of law. Jefferson, who therefore is one of a long series of presidents, presidential addresses, in which the State of the Union is generally good. Further research is required, but I suspect it was only poor Jerry Ford in January 15, 1975, who began the address to Congress by saying, the State of the Union is not good. Jefferson could have told him to avoid that mistake. But Jefferson's reason for not giving the State of the Union was a bit different. On December 8, 1801, he wrote to the Speaker of the House of Representatives and the President of the Senate, Sir, the circumstances under which we find ourselves at this place, rendering inconvenient the mode heretofore practiced of making by personal address the first communications between the legislative and executive branches, I have adopted that by message as used on all subsequent occasions through the session. In doing this, I have had principal regard to the convenience of the legislature, to the economy of their time, to their relief from the embarrassment of immediate answers on subjects not yet fully before them, and to the benefits thence resulting to the public affairs. Trusting that a procedure founded in these motives will meet their approbation, I beg to leave through you, sir, to communicate the enclosed message with documents accompanying it to the Honorable House of Representatives. So, no mention of monarchical precedent being obnoxious to him, no message of public speaking um, or his distaste for it, simply a desire to give information to the House when it was actually in session. Houses of Representatives up until the 20th century met rather irregularly by our standards and for short periods of time. Travel was difficult. Not everyone was there. Moreover, the State of the Union message, the annual message to, con to Congress, 
often gave information that can now be found looking at Apple News every morning. What had happened in the Ottoman Empire or with the Tsar? What had happened to trade in this and such location? And so on. Often, the details of State of the Unions are extraordinarily quotidian and banal by our standards. Woodrow Wilson changed all that. In 1914, he decided that he wanted to take full advantage of the of pomp and circumstance, and he addressed a joint State of the Union, uh, a joint session of Congress, with his annual message in person, and thus it's always been, with the exception of the Herbert Hoover administration. State of the Unions remarkably altered in their nature with Franklin Delano Roosevelt, particularly his messages of 1941 and 1944, in which he announced the Four Freedoms and the Second Bill of Rights, respectively. To a certain extent, every president ever since has been trying to catch up. Yet, as government has gotten ever more complex, as there are more and more agencies, each clamoring for their share of the budget, each anxious to have their program approved by Congress, State of the Unions begin to resemble more those of the 19th century, in which the president brings to the attention of Congress not news from abroad, not what's going on with trade or what's happening in the territories, but what's happening in all the individual agencies and asking for Congress to give them attention, to give them their one minute, their one sentence in the sun. And so State of the Unions tend to resemble the laundry lists that they generally were throughout the 19th century, rather than the grand messages of 41 and 44 and of Lyndon Baines Johnson's address of 1965 announcing the Great Society, although, note, he did not use that term in that speech, at least. So the State of the Union has a history, like so many other things do. And it's a history not necessarily of politics, but of political culture, of the culture that surrounds politics, that give its, gives its meaning and purpose to politics. It turns out that many of the things that we value about our republic, about our society, aren't actually written down. They're the accretion of time. They're the accretion of custom. Depend upon people agreeing to follow those customs. They're not written down as laws. No one thought to do so. No one would think to enforce them if they were. We rely upon the goodwill of politicians and of citizens to see that that's done. And this has been Historically Thinking's Commonplace Book for the week of January 27th, 2019. Please give us a review on iTunes. It will enable more people to find the podcast and enable us to grow the number and types of our programs. Until next time, right in the corner where you are.